I think sometimes journalists are a bit happy dealing with an incomplete sets of facts. <laughs> they don't want too much information. They don't want to overburden themselves with, with too much context. That might spoil a good story. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Crawford Media Podcast with me, Hal Crawford. Australian journalist and author Gideon Haig has the kind of name that seems to fit the man and his vocation like a glove. There's something about the syllables that seems literary, or at least I've always thought so. The marketing fits the product in this case. Gideon has written 46 books, according to the bibliography on his site, and edited or contributed to several others. He's also written thousands of articles, and while his most common subject is cricket, he's not your typical sports writer. Gideon's interests are wide-ranging, and his writing, even about cricket, embraces an expansive view of human possibility. He's the kind of writer who seems to be able to make anything interesting. Which explains why I wanted to get him on the podcast and talk. What are his views on the core nature of journalists? What are the pitfalls of working from home? And what's his secret to remorselessly producing book after book? So the background to the conversation, Gideon, is that once many years ago, you interviewed me for, I think it was an essay that you were writing about newsrooms and their decline. During the course of that conversation, you made some comments to me that I thought were pretty insightful about the about news as a, as a profession. And I thought given my current podcast and interest, it would be great to talk to you in general about newsrooms. But that's the background for the conversation. Always with the proviso that it's quite a long time since I've actually worked in a newsroom, but but I do have some uh, half-formed thoughts about the way in which contemporary news is, is operating. You, you, you can't escape it when you've been doing this for as long as I have, almost 40 years. Would you mind telling me when you were in, a, in an actual newsroom, how long ago and under what circumstances was that? That's a long time ago. Uh, I think the last newsroom I had really close contact with and was going into on a daily basis was the Oz newsroom in the mid-90s in, in Melbourne, which um, was a very pleasant environment. There were quite a few people in there those days, but uh, you know, I've since come and gone from newsrooms and I've got you know long-term relationships with a lot of people who do work in, uh, in those environs. And uh, it's you know, one, of the, one of the pleasant things about being an independent Journalists is that you don't have to go into newsrooms, mm, mm, mm. and and pleasant pleasant because you don't like being in someone else's space. No, I just think I, I think the mainstream media is uh, is economically embattled and uh, and perennially overstretched. You know, since the days when I was in the Oz newsroom. The, the relentlessness of the daily cycle has been replaced by the relentlessness of the 24-hour cycle. Uh, you know, the, the news is constantly being born, maturing, and, and dying before our eyes. Uh, you're constantly playing catch-up. There's, uh, there's a sense of running hard simply to stand still. At least when I was a regular in newsrooms, you geared yourself up to meeting the daily deadline, and then that that deadline passed and you had an opportunity to review and reflect on on how you'd done before. These days, I think it's almost impossible to get those periods of respite for, for necessary reflection. Uh, the news is a, is a rough beast 
and uh, and pretty relentless in its appetites. I found uh, I worked at the West Australian in the nineties, and we very much had the daily cadence, and mm. our uh, our deadlines might have been a bit earlier than most dailies because we had such a big state to distribute the papers to. But I think it was around seven o'clock, and when that time had passed and you'd done your work and filed your copy, there was a wonderful feeling of both relief and satisfaction in having done your job. Yes. Do do you remember that feeling? I do. I do very much. Uh, And also introspection and and comparison because the the papers would come in uh, your competitors and you would see instantly how they'd covered the same story as you. And sometimes that was good. Sometimes it was bad. Sometimes it was negative because you never felt as though you got it right. You always felt as though the opposition had done a better job. Uh, you always thought that you compared unfavorably and it was, it could be a slightly, uh, dispiriting experience as well. At the same time, there was, as you say, a, a sense of achievement, uh, a sense of, you know, laying down your burden at, uh, at, at the end of the day. That sense of completeness, I think it's missing now. It's like something that's never tied off. Do we require a solution or should we just be happy with a sense of incompleteness? Well, there is a great emphasis these days on being first and also being content with only telling part of the story. Uh, I, I think we often sort of rush into print well before we're entirely sure of, of even a, a, a decent proportion of the facts because of the necessity to, uh, to get something up for, uh, the, for the algorithm to, uh, to, to, to tangle with. But the problem is that having written that first draft of the story, you're ill-equipped, I think, to add anything or qualify anything or elaborate or, uh, or contextualize what you've already done. Uh, the original version of the story will necessarily draw all subsequent developments towards it, which I think is inevitably going to have a distorting effect on the news that we read and the news that we, that we consume. Uh, you know, it's what, like Churchill said, it's you know, a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth has the opportunity to put its pants on. That's an interesting quote in the context of the competition between truth and lies on Mm. social media where lies necessarily have an advantage and not just a time advantage, but you can obviously you can craft a fiction to be the best story that you want, whereas the truth is constrained. I know that there's a, there's a weasel phrase that I see in a lot of news reporting these days. You'll, You'll see it regularly. It's so-and-so has been contacted for comment. In other words, they haven't actually contacted. And we probably, we probably sent them a text message five minutes before we press the send button. Uh, that's disingenuous. You do owe them uh, the opportunity to, to make some sort of reply, even though, of course, you know, at the same time, we know that, uh, that, uh, that PR departments and media relations people can, can slow walk you and, and detain you and, and try to mislead you. But I do think that uh, we're letting ourselves off a bit lightly if we if we just stop with with that kind of weasel phrase. T- tell me about the character of journalists. Uh, one thing that I would note, as a, I've been a news director since I last spoke to you. I've amassed a few more years' experience, mm. but the observation that journalists are very poor long term planners has remained a constant. Possibly you don't suffer that. I noticed that you've put out a bevy of books and that you don't stop with your book output 
which is putting the rest of us to shame. <laughs> Tell me about why. Why are journalists such poor long-term planners? Well, they live in a kind of a permanent present, don't they? I mean, it, it, there's, there's the word new is in news and, uh, you know, they are interested in what's happening in front of them rather than necessarily what might have happened yesterday or, or last week or, or what might happen a day down the track. Uh, there is a, uh, a, a tendency to cover things in a very sort of glancing and, and, and superficial fashion. They're curious up to a certain degree, I think, but perhaps not to the degree where their own preconceptions on stories might be challenged. Part of that, of course, is the, is the limitations of the form. The fact that you're not writing terribly long, you're always writing to with limited time and, and, and limited resources, which encourage you to collect uh, pretty shallow impressions uh, and you know, to, to expose sort of at, at best two sides of an argument where there's probably you know, 10, or, 10 or 20, uh, you're always dealing with, a, with an incomplete set of facts. I think sometimes journalists are a bit happy dealing with an incomplete set of facts. <laughs> they don't want too much information. They don't want to overburden themselves with, with too much context. That might spoil a good story. There's that line of Desmond Hackett's from the Daily Express. He said, you get a headline and you draw the facts towards it. Uh, I, I think increasingly that's, that's what we're doing. We set out with an intention to find a particular story and we report those facts that, that most conduce to the, the reproduction and, and dissemination of a, a, a pre-existing set of cliches. I think that's right, and it's one of my main criticisms of the standard journalistic practice, which is the template, the story template or stereotype mm. or cliche comes first. Mm. The facts are then shoehorned into yeah. a shape, more or less beaten into shape, and, and sometimes they fit well and sometimes they fit less well. But it's almost the opposite of the scientific method, isn't it? Yeah, and it's boring too. I think you sort, of, you sort of never really get out of first gear or you never really get away from first impressions. Uh, but like I said, part of that is to do with the format. You're always dealing with it with a, with a limitation of, of words. I always found in sort of writing features that the story got exponentially more interesting once you got beyond 2,000 words. But mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you had to include those facts that were inconvenient to your thesis. They're mm. actually perhaps at odds with, with what you believed. Mm. How many features these days go beyond 2,000 words? In mm. fact, that's a hell of a lot of words for a daily newspaper. Mm. Mm. The New Yorker, for example, runs 6,000-word articles, mm. and I can hardly read them. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Long is not always better. You're right. Yeah. Long is, has its own vices as well. Long can kind of introduce a sort of a languidness and a, and a degree of, of, of self-indulgence, mm. but it shouldn't. When you sit down to write a story, you should have much, much, much more material than mm. you need for the purposes of that story, which you know, affords you the opportunity to be, to, to be selective and definitive about what you're using. Yeah. Something else came to mind. You were talking about the inclusion of facts inconvenient to your thesis mm. or storyline. And I, I've, I don't know if you found this, but I often have, is that real people say things that you don't want them to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm writing mm. a story at the moment that um, that I've been working on for probably about five or six weeks on and off. And 
every time I think I've got a grasp of the story, I learn something that doesn't quite fit and it sort of sends me down another rabbit hole. It, it, mm. I'm dealing with, with events that happened, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. So there's a, there's a considerable time gap and a, and a sort of a latency period. People have had an opportunity to craft stories or to, or to come up with, with retellings that, that suit themselves. But even now, after all this research, and I've got mountains of it sitting on my desk, I'm just not entirely sure what I'm going to write. But it's fascinating. It's, abs- it's really pricked my curiosity. Can you share what that one's about? Uh, it's, about it's about the early days of, uh, of, of maritime archaeology in, in Western Australia, when all of a sudden people realised off the coast of Western Australia there were, there were heaps and heaps of these historic wrecks. And what were people going to do with them? Were they treasure ships that could be that should could be plundered for uh, for, for wealth, or should they be preserved in the uh, in the national interest? And it was very much up for grabs at the time. In fact, we have the first legislation protecting maritime heritage anywhere in the world happened in Australia, mm. uh, but it's got some extraordinary larger than life characters. Oh yeah, it's, Max. Yeah, yeah, Max Kramer. Yeah, I, I, I interviewed him one time. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, Inter- it's, it's interesting cove. Absolutely fascinating. It's the early days of scuba when sort of scuba has opened up this whole undersea world. It's uh, it's a kind of a it's got a frontier feel about it because Western Australia in those days was was a pretty raw and, and rough and ready place. In some ways it's a it's a sort of a metaphor or a synecdoche of the whole story of Western Australia. Is it a land ripe for plunder or is it a land where convention can be brought to a, to, to lawlessness? I've done a lot of digging. I've spoken to a lot of people. I've dug up a lot of documentary material. And even now, I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to say. But that's part of the fun. You know, if you, if you knew exactly what you were going to say at the outset of every story, then what would be the point of doing it? Mm. I, I mentioned earlier that you've had a high book output. Mm. You, you're doing this long article. You've got many irons in the fire. What's the... What's what's the method for what's the trick? Yeah. What's the trick? <laughs> I think look, the trick is to do things that you're really interested in, the things that you're really curious about. Uh and the things that you don't know anything about. I I, I think that's that's part of the excitement of journalism for me, is going into things that I don't know anything about. The idea of doing a round in journalism, like being a political reporter or a or a, or a business reporter or something like that, where I had to deal with the same people every day and basically write the same kind of stories. That I'm too old for that now. I'm not, I'm not really interested. Uh, I'm interested in writing about things that I don't know anything about. Uh, and I'm interested in working in ways that I haven't worked in before. And journalism should be a license to, uh, to, to, to do that. I, I, I do a lot of my journalism in, in book form now because I find that you do get the scope uh, to really go places that you that you wouldn't otherwise go. And what I do is journalism. There's no doubt about it. I would never call myself a historian. I don't have the qualifications to be a historian. Everything is about journalism. I use journalistic methods. I use uh, journalistic approaches. But I, I, I pick and choose stories where I can be tested, you know, really stimulated, and learn stuff. Mm. And learn how to do things better. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty simple ambition, really, to, to be 
better at my job uh, a year hence than I am now. Tell, tell me about the economics. So books don't make much money because they don't sell many copies in Australia and New Zealand, yeah. I think. How long does it take you to do a book on average? Well, there are, there, are di- there are different kind of books. You know, the book that I did on Doc Evatt recently, The, the Brilliant Boy, uh, that probably took me three years on and off. Mm. Um, but it was a great project. I absolutely loved doing mm. it. I would never have imagined myself writing that book, but, uh, but you know, it totally got under my skin. Something like uh, the book that I've just done with Daniel Christian, the Australian cricketer, that's probably taken a year. I've helped him write a diary of his, uh, of his year of, of T20. That was fun. I've, self, I've just self-published a book called uh, The Night Was a Bright Moonlight and I Could See a Man Quite Plain which is an Edwardian cricket murder, true crime meets cricket. I did it over the space of about three or four months in, in lockdown last year in Melbourne when there wasn't really terribly much else to do. Mm. Uh, so they've all got their own time horizons. It's like it's like journalism, you know, some stories you toil over for, for weeks, some stories you can write in an afternoon. Mm, mm. The Brilliant Boy, I'm halfway through reading it and I'm really enjoying it. It's very interesting and I have to admit I'd heard the name Doc Evatt before but I had no idea who he was and what he'd done. That was a three-year project. It feels like that when you're reading it. It feels like something that you've gone into pretty deep. What's What am I going to find at the end of that book? I'm halfway through. I'm right into it. I, I'm, I'm in a world, you know, that world of the 30s it was very uh, tumultuous, you know. There was all this uh, uncertainty about communism, yes, socialism yes, between yes. the wars. Yeah. It made me reflect. We're over-anxious and a little bit self-indulgent about our own times and our own troubles. I think the big difference, the big difference I think, from uh, between now and then is that it was a terribly small Australia did seem to me in writing uh, The Brilliant Boy and also my earlier book on the 1920s, The Scandal in Bohemia, that everyone in the Australian intelligentsia and creative classes knew one another. Uh, writers, painters, poets, musicians, sculptors. Uh, it, was, it was a group that, that were well acquainted with, with one another and who, uh, who found Doc Evert to be a, a, an inspirational figure. One of the reasons why I was interested in writing this book was precisely for the reasons that you enumerate there. He's a name, but why did he? Why was he such a name? Why was he so uh, acclaimed? Why was he treated as a, as a, as such a special man when the the predominant memory of him or the predominant public image of him is just the slightly shambolic, uh, electorally unsuccessful Labour leader of the of the nineteen fifties? I sort of take you back to a period of. You know, peak Evert in the 1930s when he's extraordinarily productive and ubiquitous. He's not only the youngest man ever to join the, the High Court bench, but also one of Australia's most successful historians, uh, one of its uh, most conspicuous opinion makers, one of its great champions of modern art, a man with deep links in the labour movement, a man identified with prominent liberal causes. Uh, a remarkably versatile and, uh, and and eclectic Australian, a genuine public intellectual before we even had the phrase. So 
that was that was the kind of the world that I was uh, bent on recreating. And uh, I was it was I'm, I'm glad that you've been transported to it because I felt transported to it at the at, at the same time. A world with which I had hitherto been pretty unfamiliar. And it's yeah, you yeah. know it's it's a, it's a it's a book that I wrote really because um, I was just curious um, mm. to explain I, the last. 10 or 15 years I've been involved in a, uh, a series of seminar programs by the National Judicial College um, where we where the college gathers together a small group of writers and, and encourages them to coach a group of judges and judicial officers in the better writing of judgments, you know, more lucid and accessible uh, judgments written in good plain English that, that anyone could read. Uh, and I think about five years ago now, uh, there was a conversation that I was part of where um, the intersection between the law and literature was discussed, and someone mentioned, oh, there's Everett in Chester. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Hmm. Uh, what's all that about? And it was explained to me that, um, that in this particular uh, famous dissent, Everett had invoked uh, Poem by William Blake and a passage from uh, from Joseph Furphy's Such Is Life, and this is very very unusual in the annals of Australian jurisprudence. And I thought that sounds so interesting. I should learn. I should know more about that. So I set myself to finding out more, and then you know, unfortunately, I'm in. The, I have that mindset where I see books everywhere. So immediately, I became acquainted with that descent. I I started thinking. I wonder if I could use that as an aperture through which to reassess Evert, because he is a character who has interested me. I've read all the biographies and I, I knew a little bit about his provenance, but not this particular period in his life. And just see you know, how far I can take this. Before I knew it, I had a book in my hand. Mm, mm. Well, that's that's a good insight into the process that that, that led to it. Psychologically, I find, and I wonder if you find the same, that when you read about someone like Everett, who, as you note, was hungry for fame and, mm. you know, awards and all of that sort of stuff, but he was also immensely talented. I always feel a little bit like I've, you know, that I'm not up to the mark, that I'm not <laughs> as good as those people. I never will be. I'm just very ordinary. You mm. know, do you ever feel like that? Actually, I, find, I found this particular story really inspirational. Uh, when I read that dissent, which you'll which you'll get to in in due course, I, I really did think you know this is a remarkable man. It's a remarkable consciousness, a remarkable intellect, uh, and it, it's an honour to kind of do it justice, to try and do it justice. Uh, and I, there is a sort of an underlying without wishing to be too pretentious about it, there is a sense of underlying public service to journalism, I think, at its best. You are trying to bring stories out that people are unaware of. You are trying to uh, set things right. You are trying to, to do things justice. You are trying to live up to, uh, to, to previous examples. And that's a, that's a pretty solid motivation for me. I know I'll never be as smart as Doc Everett, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, there's a powerful sense in me of wanting to share the things that I've found. And I'm not doing this purely for my own curiosity. I'm because I have the journalistic mentality of things being incomplete until I see it in printed form. I'm, I'm a dedicated finisher and a dedicated disseminator, and I'm very happy to talk about it afterwards.
Mm. So just to mention your book about the movement away from offices, it's called The Quiet Momentous Day. Mm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've got the thesis that rather than the decline of the office, we should be looking at this as a as a sort of a, an encroachment of of work and officey style work into entire lives. Yeah, yeah. Is that absolutely. right? Yeah, yeah. We'll end up living at work rather than <laughs> rather yes. than going to work. Now, t- tell me about that. Is that is that an American thing? Is this a cultural uh, Americanism? I was surprised at how willingly people embrace the idea of of working from home. Not that I'm you know not that I'm anyone to complain, considering I've worked from home since the mid nineteen nineties. Uh, and and very happily too, but uh, I I do have that strong feeling that we are always in danger of finding work inescapable, of completely burying ourselves in it. At least when terrestrial offices existed, it was possible to leave them and close the door behind us, and proceed through the you know the airlock back into uh, our our domestic sphere. Uh, if the barriers continue to erode, the iron law of capitalism is that more and more will be demanded of us, you know, total contactability and, and, and connectivity, uh, infinite kind of encroachments by our employers on our what we previously regarded as our, as our private time. Uh, so when I heard people kind of championing the work from home movement, uh, my contrarian instinct said you know be careful what you wish for i think that a lot of the opinions that were uh, that they sort of welcomed working from home as a kind of a panacea and uh and you know a, a sort of a generally utopian ideal to aspire to were written by people who really like their jobs <laughs> think, oh, well you know too much work is never enough but in fact not everyone relates to their job in exactly the same way a lot of people want to leave their job behind and that's mm. that's totally understandable mm. Mm. Now, I, w- I want to circle back to you. You know what we haven't mentioned about you yet, Gideon Cricket? Mm. There's a whole other aspect to your career uh, where it's cricket, cricket, cricket. Is there something special about the game of cricket? Well, I play it. That's mm. pretty important. I continue to play it. I took it up when I was about eight or nine, and I'm still playing it for, for a club. Uh, it's been the longest and probably least successful part of my life. (laughs) It's something that I've uh, always loved. It's something that I've always enjoyed. Uh, I've enjoyed the sense of community that that comes from playing cricket at at grassroots level. Uh, I'm a a solitary person who pursues a solitary endeavour. The the, the creation of kind of a social circle out of out of cricket has been a very important to to me and and continues to to be so i think also after so long writing about something you've made a considerable intellectual investment in it you know i've got a very broad and deep historical and literary knowledge in this subject uh when i see something happen i i, I can sort of more or less instantly contextualize us uh, I, I sort of see the, the relationship between the cricket and non-part and cricket part of my writing as you know, sort of a, as, as two intersecting axes, you know, one where I know a lot about a little and another one where I know a little bit about a lot. Mm. You know, I have a classic sort of journalist's 
working general knowledge in that I have uh, little areas of expertise interspersed with huge vistas of ignorance. Uh, I've done lots of little stories here and there. I probably don't know exactly how to, how to link them all together. But um, I also like the relationship between the cricket and the non-cricket because it means that I can get away from cricket altogether. I'm, I'm never completely swamped or, or consumed by it. And that when I come back to it, I can feel refreshed and, and ready for it. I, I, the last thing in the world that I've ever wanted to do was be a full-time cricket writer. Yeah. I can't imagine anything more boring. So, uh, and periodically I, periodically I fantasize of getting away from it completely, mm. but then something will always kind of tweak my interest and in, in where I think as though I might have something to say. Yeah. So, so tell me about where you're heading. What, are you a, a career planner? Did you sit down one time a few decades ago and think, no, I'm not going to work in a newsroom, I'm going to write books? Oh, hell no. No, I'm a terrible career planner. I have absolutely no idea what I'm going to be doing next week, let alone next year. Uh, it, the, you know, the, probably the one sort of career move that I have made, which is which was leaving newsrooms in the, in the mid-1990s, I did probably in the expectation that I would eventually go back. Uh, but as it is, kind of the, the, the interests of, of uh, news desks and, and mine have kind of diverged to such a degree that near the twain shall meet again. Uh, so I'm sort of reconciled to being a, a, a bit of an outlier. The next book, are you, are you going to turn this marine archaeology article into a book or what's your next book? No, I don't know. I, I see books everywhere, Hal. <laughs> mm. Everything, everything mm. I can you know, I'll almost immediately see it between covers. But maybe, maybe not. Not everything has to be a book. There's an art to creating a, a well-crafted piece of, uh, of, of, of a certain length. Now, a lot of work will go into writing that piece, but uh, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to, to, to cover all the bases. Mm. Uh, I don't know what I'll be working on next. I, I am actually writing a, uh, helping Wazam Akram write his autobiography at the moment, so that's mm. an interesting experiment for me, uh, working collaboratively with a – with a great cricketer and a, and a great cricketer from another country. Is that what's called ghost writing? Yeah, it is. I've just done that with um, with Daniel Christian for a, for a diary. That was actually my idea. That diary, mm. I thought you pitched it to him. I did actually. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I'd always wanted to to read a diary of a sort of a contemporary T Twenty player, uh, just to see what it's like from the inside. You know, a lot, I know a lot about T Twenty from the outside, but I'd like to know what it feels like to be in there to be moving from franchise to franchise and in, over the last two years from, from bubble to bubble, mm. uh, watching games go past, feeling, you know, working out how much longer you've got in the game, working out how to assimilate a new dressing room, working out how to uh, introduce yourself mm. to a new culture. I found that kind of fascinating. So I put that to him and, and we, we have done that over the last year. Yeah. I just want to close out by just going back to the general journalism uh, environment, and you—you you yeah. were pretty early with the deserted newsroom. In, in didn't feel early when you wrote it in 2012. 2012 turned out to be about the low point in terms of sackings and all this sort of thing yeah. that were going on in journalism. It's a decade on. How do you feel about it now? I'm worried. I'm always worried about it. Uh, you know, I work for the Australian 
which I guess is, you know, big media, mainstream media, but I'm, uh, I know that it's kind of held together with sticky tape and post-it notes, that it's, uh, that newsrooms are still terribly, terribly overstretched and actually even worse, trying to do more things than they ever have before. They're not, you know, they're not, it, it's not like we're doing the same with less. We're doing more with less, considerably more with less. And I, I can't help feeling that that has had a negative effect on the quality of, of what we're doing with the best will in the world. It staggers me the amount of uh, demands being placed on people in editorial positions, uh, which has a negative impact on the amount of strategic thinking that we can do. We can barely look beyond the next day's headlines. And for an industry that's undergoing such uh, that's got such existential challenges and has undergone such convulsive restructuring, uh, that can only make things worse. Mm. Gloomy. I, I actually think that we've got to become more selective about what we do, where we devote our resources. The, we, we still cling on to this idea of, of newspapers as a journal of record. Uh, I, I think we are fooling ourselves if we believe that we can possibly do that. I think you're right. I think the resourcing, court coverage, for example, or oh, local absolutely. government coverage, it's yeah. simply not the money to do that sort of stuff. No, no. And it's vital because it's where so many great stories are. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There has to be another solution for th things of that nature, you know, bulk, bulk, broad, general governance reporting. Well, I tell you what, it was interesting this morning. I went down to the MCG to talk about the memorial service for Warney tonight, mm. and there were five tenths of the various news networks with half a dozen people surrounding each tent. It was like seven o'clock in the morning. There was no one around. Uh, they were reporting on nothing. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. It's not as though there was a chance of Warney coming back to life. I mean, that would be a great <laughs> uh, no, Nothing just, unexpected was going to occur. Yeah. So what on earth were they doing there? Mm. I mm. guess they're periodically doing the occasional live cross. But what a ridiculous misallocation of resources. Mm. I guess you say, you say misallocation, but as a news director, it, I, I just think that that's the invisible hand of the, of the journalism market. It is. It is. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yep, you have to be there because everyone else is there. So in the end, what you produce is a uh, a version of what everyone else has got, mm. uh, a, a tidy and and perfectly polished version of exactly what you can get elsewhere. Mm. And that's that, that is anathema to me. You know, journalism is about producing something different, producing things that people don't know. Uh, producing things that people didn't expect that actually challenge their preconceptions, that reveal things that are inconvenient. Uh, so in some senses, I think we're, we're falling at the first hurdle of our journalistic mission. Mm. That is a great conversation. Thanks, Gideon. I've really it's enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Nothing like getting together to scratch each other's sores, is there? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Gideon for the insights and Kevin for the music. I would like to mention that Gideon has a very worthwhile cricket podcast, Cricket Etc., 
with his colleague at the Australian, Peter Laylor. Bye for now.